You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Earn and Invest. I'm your host, Doc G, and today we interview David Meyer, the investor protector. We all recognize the names. Dogecoin, GameStop, Robinhood. For every long-term boring investment, there's a high-risk speculative asset or platform just waiting to gobble up our spare money. When we think of individual investors, we have a rather laissez-faire attitude. So be it. But what happens when it is your advisor, broker, investment house that is giving you bad advice? When does it cross the line from poor performance to deception and outright self-serving fraud? And more importantly, how do you protect yourself before it happens? And who do you turn to for help when all the money is gone? David Meyer has been dubbed the screwed investor's lawyer. He has achieved jury verdicts, arbitration awards, and settlements with a combined value of hundreds of millions of dollars on behalf of his clients. He had the honor of winning the largest jury verdict in Ohio's history, a verdict in excess of $260 million on behalf of 250 investors against Prudential Securities. His new book is The Investor Protector, Stories of Triumph Over Financial Advisors Who Lie, Cheat, and Steal. David, welcome to Fireside and Earn and Invest. Thanks, Doc G. It's great to be here. I am going to be talking today to David about how to protect yourself as an investor. David, I love this moniker, the screwed investor's lawyer. I imagine you got that after that $261 million settlement Tell us a little bit about Burns versus Prudential Securities. Yeah, so it's, it's a great story with a really happy ending. I'm happy to report. It, it's, it was just 20 years ago. I was a 28-year lawyer, a 28-year-old, three years out of law school. I was actually a tax lawyer at the time. I didn't set out to be an investment fraud lawyer you know, back in the beginning. And I was working at a small firm, not doing anything related to this. And a gentleman was referred to my boss at the time, who had, a, and this gentleman had a problem with this prudential stockbroker in a small town about an hour north of Columbus, Ohio. And my boss turned the case down because we weren't uh, litigation lawyers. And I'll never forget this. It was like it was yesterday. The gentleman was walking outside to leave to go try to find another lawyer. And I was walking out. I think I was going to the printer or something. And I literally ran into him. And I was 28 years old. And I just struck up a conversation with him. And he told me what his problems were, was. And I said, look, I'd like, I'd like the opportunity to look into this. And this was just in the beginning of beginning of the internet, and I was doing some research about pursuing claims against stockbrokers. You know, what duties did they owe, and if you had a claim, you know, in what form was appropriate to pursue it. 
And and as I got talking to them and learned a little bit more, I learned that there weren't a lot of lawyers really anywhere in the country doing this kind of work. And then talking to him, he told me, you know, Mr. Meyer, this didn't just happen to me. This happened to a lot of others. Uh, And I'd love you to come up to our community center and, and have a conversation with them. And I drove up there and and, my, and I get up there and there were 50 people in the room. These are all retirees, mostly line workers from, from a utility company up in the small town in Ohio and ended up, fast forward, there were about 250 folks uh, impacted by this. And what happened, the Prudential broker one day woke up, thought the uh, sky was falling and in October of 1998, liquidated tens of millions of dollars of his client's portfolio without authority. These were all unauthorized trades and liquidated them, went to cash. He didn't steal the money. He liquidated. He thought he was actually protecting them. But what happened was these were all unauthorized. They're all sitting in cash. And this and the, the market just started going straight up the next day. So as bad as the unauthorized trading was, it was millions of dollars in New York. The headquarters of Prudential knew about it immediately. They could see it all on the computers. But what happened, which, which made this case so egregious on behalf of Prudential was not so much the unauthorized trades because they could have reversed it. In fact, in fact, we knew once we got into the case, Doc, that after three days, they could have reversed these unauthorized trades for something like two million bucks. In other words, they could have bought back everyone's positions that was li- liquidated uh, without authority, bought it back. And because it had gone up in price, they would it would have cost them two or three million bucks. But instead, they sent an army of suits to Marion, Ohio, literally like just in planes, in cars to meet with all the clients to convince, try to convince these people to, quote, ratify, meaning legally adopt these trades. And it was that kind of behavior. They did it just to save themselves money, not because it was appropriate. And then because of that, we ended up in a class action lawsuit and it took a long time. But we had a jury verdict, uh, jury trial for one month. We got a jury verdict for $12 million in compensatory damages but $250 million in punitive damages. And it was a result of this egregious breach of fiduciary duty, not only the unauthorized trades, but the severe misconduct to try to protect themselves at the expense of their clients afterward. I mean, this brings up two interesting points. One is talk about the career pivot. I mean, you were going to be a tax lawyer, right, before this happened? Yeah, I actually got my LLM in tax. And it was around that time when that gentleman walked in that I realized, boy, this is this seems kind of boring. This is not. This is not how. This is not how I wanted to spend the next thirty years of my life. And I knew I wanted to ultimately have my own farm, and I wanted to represent people. But I wasn't really drawn to the personal injury space at the time. My dad was a personal injury lawyer. In fact, he just retired at eighty-nine years old this past uh, summer. But he, he was a personal injury, a, a more typical personal injury lawyer. I didn't want to do that, but I liked the idea of helping people you know, who were in a tough spot and standing up for them, leveling the playing field. But what I, what I found this, this interest was from an economic standpoint. So folks who were damaged suffered economic damages and who needed someone to step up for them. And, and then it really, I opened my law firm in the middle of this prudential case because it took seven or eight years for that case to go. I started my law firm, uh, depending on how old your listeners are, I started my law firm just at the end of 1999. So the market crashed in early 2000. You know, my, my business, my mark, my law firm was three months <laughs> open at that point, And we had probably two or 300 cases. And that's that was how I was off and running. Um, and even now, 20 years later, 25 years later, there still are not a lot of lawyers who devote their practice to representing individual investors who have claims against the brokerage firm. So it's been a wonderfully rewarding practice. 
And, you know, this book that took me 18 months to write was really 25 years in the making. So there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears, just a lot of emotions going a lot of ways in, in writing this, putting this book together. Yeah. Talk about a time to start practicing. You were right in the midst at the beginning of the tech bubble where people really did lose their shirts. I like the way you said that all the corporate suits came in for Prudential. And it reminds me, this is really kind of a David versus Goliath situation, right? I mean, these big investment houses have just the best that money can buy when it comes to lawyers. They really do. It's it's what I always said. I think I'm sure I say it in the book that, you know, you can win your case against Wall Street, but it's going to be a war and it takes an army to win that war. And what I think I bring to the table in these cases is I've been I, mean, I, I learned that when I was 28 years old. I mean, I had the, the, the most sophisticated lawyers. I mean, these are bright, savvy, smart lawyers on Wall Street that came into you know, our backyard in Ohio and they were impressive and they had what seemed to be limitless resources. When we put together a team, you know, we believe we were on the right side of it. And I was committed to work as hard as I needed to do to do the best job I could for these folks, because this was their one shot. I mean, they worked their entire lives. They were retired. And, you know, at this point, when you're retired, you don't have an opportunity to make that money up again. You can't work another 30 years. So you've got one opportunity when, you know, when this situation happens and you lose a lot or all your money, then you've got one shot to get it back. So, you know, you've got to be really careful about how you do it. We'll talk about fraud in a minute, but tax law is a far cry from being a trial lawyer. Were you ready for that pivot? Did you find that being a trial lawyer maybe suited you better in the first place? Well, that's actually a great question. So when I was a, for the first three years, although I was a tax lawyer, uh, the litigation lawyer at the firm left. So I was actually thrown into uh, a lot of, of litigation early on. It was mostly business litigation, but for the first two or three years of my practice, I was trying cases, bench trials in front of ju judges and also jury trials. So I was really thrown into the fire. You know, new lawyers, more so even today than back then, if you go, if you go join a, a large law firm as a litigator out of law school, it's going to be five years before you get into a courtroom, really, just because there's so few cases go to trial these days and there's so many litigation lawyers. I was lucky to work for a small firm. So right out of the gate, I was blessed with the, the, the fortunate opportunity to be a trial lawyer, even you know before this, so I had tried ten cases or whatever it was, and I, and I felt like I was good at it. I enjoyed it, so it, it really was just really came together and just perfectly for me. And it's and I've, I've been uh, super blessed over the, over the years to have the opportunities I've had. So let's talk about fraud a little bit more. When it comes to investing, isn't there more of a buyer beware aspect? I know in your book you said you turn away many more cases than you take. How do we draw the line between someone who is, let's say, a bad financial advisor versus someone who's fraudulent? Well, let's take a step back because you, you asked a, a great question and you may got that from a book maybe is that, that, that people think that when you hire a financial advisor and you trust them to invest your money properly, that it is like it, you think it's a buyer beware situation. And it's not. It's not caveat enter. Investing and trusting your life savings with a broker or an investment advisor is not like buying a used car. Advisors have fiduciary obligations. They've got other obligations to uh, recommend and implement an appropriate portfolio for you based on your investment objectives, your risk tolerance, and your life experiences. So they do have significant obligations. The securities industry, Doc, is highly regulated, about the high, high, most highest regulated industry in the world. So there is a tremendous amount of you know rules and regulations and standards. And now it gets somewhat 
complicated in terms of what duties are owed by whether you're a stockbroker or an investment advisor. And I try to dive into this. I do dive into this in the book to try to explain it in a way that, that, you know, we all can understand because it's important to understand the different types of regulatory structure is out there. So the first, I think the first concept is to understand that there are significant duties and obligations of professional advisors, whether it's an investment advisor or a or a stockbroker, they have a duty and obligation to act in your best interest to recommend and implement an appropriate portfolio for you. So that's part of the question. Now, to determine, you know, if losses that you've suffered as a, are the result of misconduct or because of just other forces unrelated to the activity of your advisor, you know, that's something that you should seek the advice of an experienced lawyer about. No investments guaranteed. But you've got to look at your portfolio, what you were sold, and compare it to what would have an appropriate, reasonable investment advisor uh, recommended. It's, it's really like a negligence standard. You look at what is the standard in the industry, what should have an appropriate, diligent advisor recommended, and compare it to what actually happened. In other words, if you're 65 years old and you've, you say, you've worked your entire life and you save up your money and you do your due diligence and you hire an advisor and that advisor does what the, he or she is required to do and, and evaluate your, your complete financial situation, looks at your investment experience, understands your risk tolerance, has a good picture of your entire investment portfolio, understands your tax situation and your age and your health, and then recommends an appropriate portfolio based on all that. And then if that portfolio declines in value, then everything else being equal, you don't have a claim against the advisor. And there's a lot of reasons why we are unable to help 90% of the people that call us. But a big part of it is, is because people want to, some people just, when they just want to know, look, I've suffered investment losses that appear to be, you know, unequal to what others in, in similarly situated have happened. So I want to inquire to see if I have a claim. If I do, then I want to understand what my rights are. And if I don't, I appreciate your time and effort and, and I'll move on. And then a lawyer like me, you know, that has the appropriate staff to be able to dig in, we can, we can, we'll sort of do an analysis of what should have been done at the outset of your relationship with your advisor and understand your big picture, uh, your investment experience and your goals and your risk tolerance, and then compare it to the portfolio that you were sold and go from there. Yeah. As I listened to you discuss what an advisor should and shouldn't do, it almost reminds me of when I was a doctor, the standard of care, the things that a reasonable physician would do in that position. Is there any governing body? What about CIPIC? Does it help protect investors? There's, there's something called CIPIC, which is a, a federal fund, and we talk about that in that book, that does provide protections. It's funded by fees and expenses paid by the banking industry, but it has very, very narrow protection. So if your broker lies, cheats, or steals, it's likely not going to be covered by that government fund. So CIPIC, which is a lot of people get comforted by the fact that, hey, I'm, I'm with XYZ brokerage firm. It says that they're a member of, of SIPC, so I must be protected. I, I've been doing this 25 years, not a single one of my clients. This is important. Over a thousand clients over 25 years, not a single one of my clients has ever recovered any money from SIPIC. So the federal fund that's there is very, very limited. The requirements to set to, to get entitlement to that fund is very narrow. So the, the next, the next protection would really be the requirement for insurance. I don't know how it is in other countries, but unbelievably so in the United States, there is currently no requirement for brokerage firms or investment advisors to carry liability insurance. 
It's very hard to believe. Most folks that call me are shocked that you can you can be entrusted with millions of dollars of clients' money in this country. There is no requirement for insurance. So the the best protection for folks in their retirement is to do some work on the front end. And this is really why I wrote the book, because when a client is referred to me for legal help in, in an investment loss case, they've already suffered a devastating financial loss. And my job, my day job, is to fight to recover their life savings that was lost at the hands of a bad broker. But and, and look, it's unbelievably rewarding to fix problems and recover my client's life savings. But would be even better is to help retirement savers and the investing public before they're ever entangled with a bad financial in the first place. So the idea behind the book is I want to be able to help prevent these devastating financial losses before it happens. So the protection, and, and I love the word protection because I think this book, in my opinion, is body armor for individual investors. And if you follow the steps in this book, uh, then the chances that you're ever going to need someone like me go way down. So the best way to protect yourself, unfortunately, it's not it's not government funding or it's not insurance. It's really taking a few basic steps on the front end to reduce your chances to ever need someone like me. And really, after re- most of the calls I get, Day after day, I mean, we probably get 20 calls a week from folks of just devastating financial losses after years and years of hard work. A lot of these, fo- a lot of these cases could be prevented or significantly uh, lessened uh, if they, if folks would have done some things on the front end. I'm happy to talk about those, but it, there really are some steps that aren't incredibly difficult, uh, and there's no guarantee that this, those, these steps alone will help, you know, protect you. But there's a good chance that if you follow these steps the likelihood of ever having a problem down the road is significant. And speaking of Ponzi schemes, because that's a great example. There's, there's, I mean, I think there's like 200 big Ponzi schemes a year in this country, billions of dollars lost. And the, the best way to avoid getting involved in a Ponzi scheme, and this is, it's not foolproof, but it's pretty darn close. And that's never, ever, ever invest a single dollar of money you care about with somebody who's not licensed to uh, sell investments or give investment advice. Most Ponzi schemers, not all, I've had plenty of Ponzi schemes in, against advisors and brokers at firms, but most of them are by just a uh, complete con artists who never had a security license or didn't have an active license at the time they were engaging in the fraud. So being able to research whether you, the person that you are considering hiring is licensed as a registered representative with a brokerage firm or an investment advisor can be done online from your living room around the world, sitting in your, in your pajamas by going to brokercheck.org. And that's the, the website run by the regulators and the state, the state and federal regulators of every advisor's record of their employment history, their, whether they, what exams they've passed and any customer complaints. It's not a hundred percent accurate. But if you if you're considering hiring somebody and you go on brokercheck.org and they're nowhere to be found, then you should run, not walk away. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to David Meyer, writer of The Investor Protector, stories of triumph over financial advisors who lie, cheat and steal. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is Earn and Invest. 
All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. On this episode, we'd like to give a shout out to Unify Money. The big banks spend billions of dollars on advertising each year and create special acquisition incentives and promotions to attract new customers. And you know why? Because they have to. Because they offer very poor value for customers' deposits. The separate accounts and functions make it purposefully complex to manage money. All these expenses, advertising, branch costs, etc., have to be paid for. Unfortunately, it's the customers that foot the bill through low interest rates and high fees. A typical bank retains over 90% of what they make from people's money. Unify Money aims to give 90% of the money back to users. It has been created to provide people with a better way to manage their money. Unify Money offers a single solution that includes everything you need for everyday money management, including saving, spending, and investing. Unify Money has optimized your personal financial management to make it effortless, maximizing passive income via interest and cash back and creating long-term financial assets through investment automatically and by default. Unify Money makes your money work for you, not the bank. If you want to learn more, check it out. Go to earnandinvest.com slash unify. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash U-N-I-F-I and check them out. We are back with David Meyer, the investor protector. David, you were talking about brokercheck.com. Aren't there some safeguards and regulatory agencies that help protect us? And isn't it slightly different between brokers and financial advisors? Well, you have to take a test and you got registered. So yeah, there's the registration criteria that you've got to you know apply with. So before you're a broker, you're going to get a criminal check. I mean, there's things that happen before an individual can be licensed. But, you know, the license, the licensing criteria isn't a huge barrier to entry, quite frankly. So just having a license by itself, by either the uh, 
federal or state regulators. I mean, it's a good step and it's a it's a fundamental baseline requirement, but it's no guarantee that just because your advisor's license that they'll be protected. I mean, the next step is dealing with, and I, I go through this in the book, who is the person uh, with whom your advisor is affiliated? Because to be a broker or an advisor, it's sort of like being a, a real estate agent. You know, you can't sell a house as a licensed real estate agent in this country unless you're affiliated with a real estate brokerage house. So you have an agent and then a broker. You know, for example, you know, John Doe is a real estate agent, but they work for Cobalt Banker, for example. Well, it's the same way in the brokerage business. So John Doe might be a what's called a registered representative, and we know that as a stockbroker or really a financial advisor, but they must be affiliated with a brokerage firm. In fact, they can't even get a license unless they're affiliated with a brokerage firm. But that affiliation alone, folks, isn't enough to give you the comfort that if there's a problem, you'll be protected down the way because brokerage firms come in all shapes and sizes. We all know the large ones, the Merrill Lynch of the world, the Morgan Stanley, the Wells Fargo. And, but then there are dozens or even hundreds of tiny ones. And as I go through and explain in the book, size matters. So if you work with an advisor who works for a large company, if something, if that person just takes off and, and, and goes to Panama with all your money, as horrible as that is, when that person calls me, if they were affiliated with a large brokerage firm, when they engaged in that fraud, there's a solid claim against the brokerage firm who is a large of going concern that they'll have the ability to compensate for that loss. But what often happens and part of the, the large people that I have to turn down on a regular basis is they've got a broker, but the broker was affiliated with a tiny, tiny firm that has no assets. They're so small, they don't have the financial wherewithal to compensate, to pay for the misconduct of one of its brokers. So uh, some due diligence is required and people don't know that. There's no reason to know because nobody tells them that. And I go through in the book of, of, of sharing stories of, of clients who have worked with different sizes of brokerage firms and investment advisors uh, to highlight that problem. And I hope that makes sense. It does. And you can go and take a look at the financials of a brokerage firm you're considering getting involved with, correct? Yes. I mean, it's not easy. Now, again, and I'm not picking on big brokerage firms. I'm just using names, household names like the Merrill Lynch, the Raymond James. You know that if your broker was actually affiliated with one of those firms at the time that, that the misconduct occurred, there's a pretty good likelihood that you're not going to have a problem assuming you can prove your case. But the tiny firms are much, much harder uh, to – but I do go through the steps to figure out. And, and it, it just doesn't make sense, in my opinion, to work with an advisor who's with a tiny firm that's thinly capitalized. Because remember, there's no requirement for insurance. So why would you invest with somebody who whose firm is managing tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, but they only have $300,000 of excess net capital to pay? And that – I mean – People may not think it happens. It happens every single day. So we're going to talk about, in a moment, the fun stuff, advisors behaving badly. But you've suggested that people who are victims of financial fraud, even when they realize that something is wrong, are loath to come forward and say something. Why is that? So it's all, I think, it's a great question. I believe it's all about the exploitation of trust. And the, the analogy I use, if you'll bear with me, when we're, if we're in a car at a stoplight and we get rear-ended and it's not our fault, it's the fault of the driver of the car behind us. And if, we, if, if, if we're in a car accident, that's not our fault. And if we've suffered real injuries, then none of us have a problem, for the most part, 
doing some due diligence, looking for a lawyer and saying, look, I need my rights protected. I was in an accident and, and it wasn't my fault and I suffer damages. There's no one has any guilt or you know any bad feelings about having to go hire a lawyer and protect yourselves. But because we're dealing with money and people's savings and the privacy and this trust that that what I've seen over and over again is most folks who suffer losses as a result of the misconduct of their broker, most folks will never even uh, you know take the step to hire a lawyer be, because they internalize it. They want to blame themselves when money is stolen. From, as a result of a, a misconduct of an advisor, it's not just the money that's gone. What's also lost often is the client's dignity and, and, and their pride is taken from them. And then, Doc, when you add the age factor, most of my clients are at or near retirement. So as we age, we have some cognitive decline. You know, we have this feeling of, you know, we're often maybe alone. We don't have the support structure that we had in our younger years. Uh, we want to feel independent. We're embarrassed. We don't want to, you know, you're not generally embarrassed to say, I got in a car accident and, and I got some, I got injuries, so I need to hire a lawyer. But there's often, particularly as we age, there's a, a cognitive decline. The combination, it, it's really a perfect storm of, 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 of just a lot of different issues. Uh, there's embarrassment. Hey, I should have known better. Why did I trust this person? Uh, and I've lost my money and, and, and my, now my kids are going to find out. So all those competing factors come in and it's, it really makes it challenging for a lot of folks to step up and, and, and ask for help. You mentioned age and that's a huge risk factor, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the financial exploitation of the elderly is the number one problem. The aging population is an easy target. They're living alone. Again, this feeling of needing independence, the cognitive decline. And, and brokers are, are required to understand and, and pay attention. In fact, there's training now for financial exploitation of the elderly and what to look out for. I mean, I've had cases I talked about in the book where one of my clients, adult daughter, drugged her dad in order to steal his money through power of attorney. And they did it through the brokerage firm. And we ended up suing the brokerage firm because there was all these red flags. I mean, just a tremendous amount of red flags uh, that they should have caught. And so, again, it's as we age, there's just a lot of challenges that, that can make this much worse. Tell us about the most egregious broker advisor behavior, the most egregious behavior you've seen. The one I start the book on is uh, a couple of years ago, I represented a woman. And, I, and on cases that we've settled, I've changed the names of, of everyone to comply with confidentiality requirements. Well, I, I call this woman Dorothy in the book. And her and her husband have just the, the perfect American dream. They were raised very modest. They had not a tremendous amount of, of wealth or education as a younger, but he was an inventor and he invented uh, a device that the government ended up using. And he had this company where he sold this device over the years. He built this company and he retired and he sold the business. And he and his wife were living in a small town and they had $30 million in the bank account. And they drove they drove used cars. They weren't flashy. You wouldn't know, you know, they had any money at all. Uh, and, and only one daughter was a grown daughter and a broker who was working with the daughter, you know, through her professional career, uh, got to meet the parents and, and realized that they had this money. And so these folks were in their 80s. They were suffering from a lot of the decline that we talked about and living alone, just took advantage, exploited their trust and swindled them out of $30 million. Uh, all in about three months. And I was brought into the case and 
we, we dove in and this was just another example of there was so much money at stake and there were several big financial firms on the other side. And it was, you know, just World War Three. these lawyers that I've gotten to know over the years. So there's a lot of mutual respect. And, you know, they just they fought hard because they wanted to keep the money. And they, and so we fought and we ended up getting, I think, thirty two million dollars back. And I keep a copy of that check in my office just because I was so proud that she had just the passion and the heart and the bravery to step up at 100 years old and to let us help her. And then at her 101st birthday party, she uh, her, her nephew called me and she said, hey, please call David Meyer and thank him again for, you know, protecting the legacy of this family. So that was that was a great that was a great case. Another one, which has happened right in early 2000s, you mentioned the tech rack. I represented about 75 workers of, of a plant that made, it was, a, it was a plant in in a small town in the Midwest, and they all retired early. So these folks were in their 50s and had worked at this plant for, for 20 years, like right out of high school. And they had between three hundred and $800,000, there were 70 of them. And there was a large brokerage firm in the town that was doing... Uh, seminars and lunches and just try to get these people to roll their uh, pension and their retirements over to this brokerage account. And he got, he got, I think, 80 folks all to transfer over. I mean, it was a lot of money, probably 30, 40 million dollars. And he promised them that they would never have to work again and he would invest their money. Well, what he did in early 2000 was just put it all in high tech. I mean, these were folks that never had prior experience with their broker outside their 401k. They never had, never hired an investment advisor or broker. Their only experience was, you know, meeting once a, a quarter, once a year, even with the retirement person at their company. And then all of a sudden they had this big check and they didn't know what to do. And they weren't interested or qualified or inclined to manage it themselves. So they trust the advisor as a local guy who was, you know, in the chamber of commerce and he was at the church and the clubs and, you know, he was all around. Everyone knew him and trusted him, knew his family for years. And he lost about 60 to 80 percent of their money in less than a year. So these are folks who were in their mid to late 50s and, you know, had no chance of uh, being able to have enough money to, to last them the rest of their lives. And the case gets even crazier. So we settled it. We got a, a lot of the money back. They put it back in the, a new IRA, and we're you know to they able to move along. This 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 broker had seventy five complaints on a CRD. The CRD is the record that you look up if you go to brokercheck.org. And, and most brokers, like ninety percent of brokers, have less have less than two complaints on their on their record. This gentleman had seventy. I've never seen a report, and those those were all mostly my cases. But he didn't get fired. The firm left him there. And why? Because he was generating enough profit to make it worthwhile. So he stayed there. But check this out. So then a few years later, he leaves. He goes from that firm to another firm uh, and then gets uh, caught up in a Ponzi scheme. And a lot of his clients that were at firm A moved with him to firm B. And boy, this really brings together a lot of things, the Ponzi scheme, the small brokerage firms, you know, just a great story of, of, of how this all can really come together in a nightmare situation. So a lot of the clients and even some new folks went to the new firm. But what they didn't do, not a single one of them checked the broker uh, check. And they because if they would have, they would have pulled it up or if they would have called a lawyer like me or anyone who had read my book and say, what do we do before we hire him? Check the CRD. He would have had 80 complaints and no one in their right mind would have hired him. But they go over there and it was a tiny, tiny firm, but he went because he could make more money, you know, higher commission payouts at smaller firms. And then he got engaged. He got involved in a Ponzi scheme. 
uh, and all his clients lost all their money and that he ended up going to jail. So we sued the broker's firm and we actually took it to arbitration hearing and won, but we got paid on one and then it went out of business. So it's an example of a tiny firm uh, that didn't have the assets to uh, satisfy a, a, a judgment and a broker who had 75 complaints on his public record and folks just you know didn't have the wherewithal uh, to go check. So that was a, that was a pretty bad one. We are speaking to David Meyer, who has been dubbed the Screwed It Investors Lawyer. He has achieved jury verdicts, arbitration awards, and settlements with a combined value of hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. We'll be back after a short break. Have you been enjoying the conversations you've been hearing every Monday and Thursday on the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, if you have, there's some other places you can go to continue the conversation, even on those days we don't put out a podcast. The first is the Earn and Invest website. That's at earnandinvest.com. There you can see videos, blog posts, as well as access our old recordings, ones from previous weeks, if you want to listen to our back catalog. Also, you can go to our Facebook group. That's at earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There you can learn about everything going on in personal finance right now. We as a community have conversations about the economy, about financial independence. You name it, we discuss it there. And last but not least, you can go to our YouTube channel where we post our episodes as well as videos. That's at earnandinvest.com slash YouTube. Again, earnandinvest.com slash YouTube. All of these places are places you can go to continue the conversation seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Check it out and become part of our community. Welcome back. David Meyer's book is The Investor Protector, Stories of Triumph Over Financial Advisors Who Lie, Cheat, and Steal. David, one thing that really surprised me about the book is I learned that sometimes financial advisors and brokers will actually forge financial statements. How common is this? How often are you seeing this in practice? So it's a great point. I mean, you've really picked out some highlights of the book. Perfect. Let me just tell you a story about that. And and let me back up. So when I write this, when I wrote this book, I didn't want this to be like a reference guide. Those are boring, right? I, I think we learn best through experience sharing, not just listening to people. Hey, do this and do that and do this. No one wants to hear that. So in the book, I share stories of my clients who have triumphed over what I believe is to be unbelievable deceit by their advisors and, and have overcome unthinkable loss. So the, so the stories, the idea is these stories are hopefully interesting and then so when folks read the stories, my hope is, is at the end of the story, they go, wow, boy, that is just a crazy story. But wait a minute, I've learned something. So you actually learn something uh, by accident because you've read the story and hopefully it's, it's interesting and meaningful and you, and, and you remember. But here's and this is a great example. This is a retired couple. He was a physician and lived in a very nice, affluent community because that's another thing. People have a misunderstanding that victims of investment fraud are all uneducated, poor, you know, you know, people that aren't savvy. Most of my clients are the exact opposite. Most of my clients are educated, sophisticated. Uh, I mean, I have business owners, professional athletes, CEOs, engineers, lawyers, doctors. So there's, there's no way to appropriately pinpoint, you know, exactly who's going to be a victim. And a lot of people that think they're too smart are unfortunately the ones that get caught up in this. But back to my story. So they had had the same broker with a large firm for years. 
And because the, these brokerage firms spend so much time and money to cultivate investors' perceptions that the firms are there to look out for them, they build the trust, they do this through marketing, you know, through titles of, of you know, vice president this and vice president that. They, this is very deliberate to build the trust between the advisor and the customer. Well, this advisor would come to my client's house every quarter. And deliver statements. So, and these folks, this, these folks weren't going to be the people that were going to go online and look at their statements. And they got statements in the mail, but they rather sit and uh, commiserate and and socialize with their advisor every quarter, have coffee, have cookies, sit around, talk about the kids. So that's what they just they relied on the broker to provide the statements every quarter and sit down at the coffee table with some cake uh, and coffee and just go through everything and. And that's what they that's what they were doing. And one Christmas holiday, one of the adult son, who was also a physician, was sitting down and saw some statements there of his parents from the brokerage firm. And he looked at them. He said, man, these this doesn't look right. Something looks wrong here. So he called me as referred to me by their family lawyer. And literally, Doc, within three seconds, this was back in the fax days. I got a fax, I think, Mm -hmm. of the statement. I said, these are fraudulent. These are fake. These, there's no, this is, there's, these are not real accounts. So I got an authorization to reach out to the brokerage firm and I knew the manager and I said, Hey, I've, I've got some account numbers. I'd like you to look up for me, but I suspect it might be a problem. And I gave him the account numbers. He said, David, these aren't real accounts. So what had happened was the broker lost money by doing aggressive, unauthorized trading. He was trading on margin without authority. He was being way aggressive and he took big risks. He wanted to hit a home run. So it's not always that these brokers want to steal your money. Sometimes they want to be the hero. They want to be the neighborhood hero. So they're going to try to knock it out of the park. Well, sometimes, you know, you strike out and he lost all their money, but he didn't want to tell them. And he was, you know, he was probably scared for his job, of course, and embarrassed. So he made fake statements. And for years he would hand deliver these fake statements to his clients. And, and although they were completely broke or not broke, but they were pretty much broke. And they were drawing from their their employer's pension. So they weren't living on this money, or at least not a lot of it. So, But the statements these days with the sophisticated printers and, and design software and a computer, these bad brokers can make statements look exactly like the real thing. And, and I go through some steps in the book of what to do to minimize that chance ever happening. And I've had several cases, quite a bit of cases with fake statements in, in brokers. And ultimately, David, that's what we all want is to protect ourselves while investing. Let's look at the point when you're about to get into an investment. Are there certain types of investments that are particularly fraught that we should try to stay away from? Well, it's the alternative investments that are getting that cause so many so many damages. I truly believe that 99% of us should go to an advisor and get a well diversified portfolio. And I know you, you know, your audience is very savvy to this kind of stuff, but 99% of us should have a well balanced portfolio diversified of equities and fixed income. And, and, and that's really it and some cash, right? And maybe some international holdings. Uh, and that, that's really it. But the problem is that doesn't make a lot of money. There's not a lot of commissions in ETFs and mutual funds and Vanguard and, and similar things. So, you know, instead of a lot of look, there's a million brokers out there, literally over, over a million, and the vast majority do the, do it the right way. You know, adhere to their duties and obligations. They're honest. They're trustworthy. The problem is that the, the small minority that don't do that, there's enough to cause devastating losses. So we're talking about those advisors who aren't doing it the right way. 
you know, and, and so there's these unconventional investments, these real estate investment trusts, you know, all kinds of complicated investments, private placements, you know, ticks and, and, and all kinds of, uh, uh, all kinds of annuity products, variable insurance, variable, you know, variable annuities, all these kind of complicated insurance, all these unconventional investments, alternative investments that I think all of us should stay away from. The reason why they're sold is because the commissions are multiples of what they are in any other investment. I mean, if you, if you, if you buy a half a million dollars of a typical alternative investment and the commission, the commission might be 15, 20%. If you buy a, a variable insurance product, the commission might be a hundred percent of the first couple of years premiums. I mean, the commissions are unbelievable with these, a lot of these unconventional products and these insur- variable insurance products. So I, in my opinion, and again, I, I paint with a broad brush, but there's very few people that need to be owning any of these alternative and unconventional investments. And if you believe that you really want this, then I think instead of going just to the advisor who's going to make a huge commission, go to somebody else. So go to somebody say, look, I know, thank you, advisor. I understand you want to sell me this, but I know that you're going to get a huge commission. And look, if in fact this is appropriate for me and if this is consistent with my investment objectives, I'm okay paying you X dollars. But I'm going to go just to a neutral third party, an investment advisor who just charges me by the hour and pay an independent person who doesn't have a, you know, a dog in this fight to see if that's – and I guarantee you 95% of the time an independent outside party would say unbelievably no, do not do this. So th- those are the, those, that's the biggest thing we should avoid in my opinion. David, let's talk leverage. Is it always a bad thing? It, it doesn't make sense to borrow money to, you know, to build wealth, again, for most of us. If, in fact, unless you – if you've got enough money that you're willing to lose that portion of the money where you're, where you're leveraged, then fine. But it's not a great general wealth strategy, in my opinion, to borrow money. And this idea about if you have your house paid off and you've got an investment account, then you borrow money from the brokerage firm and your house is collateral to buy more stocks. I mean, it just it is it is unbelievably risky. It's expensive. It pays, as you might suspect, huge fees to the broker and the brokerage firm. And unless you are 100 percent comfortable and you understand the absolute risk associated with it, then I recommend you don't do it. The problem is most forms now that are signed, when you sign up with a brokerage form and investment advisor, you're going to, you're going to sign documents. Back in the day, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, that actually meant you were sitting down in someone's offices and you were going through documents. You filled out your income, your investment experience, whether you wanted a margin account, and, and then you checked the boxes and you signed it. Now, Everything is done via computer. Most of these forms are coming on our on our cell phone with DocuSign. And you guys know what happens with DocuSign. You enter it and then it clicks all the things automatically and you sign at the bottom automatically. No one's reading this stuff. So many people are opening up margin accounts they don't even know. So many people are uh, providing information to the brokerage firm because the broker filled out the forms about aggressive grows and speculation. But because everything is done so quick and so instantly and so, quote, efficiently, then you know we're losing a lot of the the, the actual information being exchanged that, that's accurate. But to answer your question again, ninety five percent of us don't need to be borrowing money to buy stocks unless you're willing to take the risks associated with that portion of your investment and willing to lose all or a great part of it. Okay, David, let's look at the other side of this. Let's say I'm looking at my financial statement and something looks wrong. What's the next step? How do I know when it's time to call lawyers? Well, there's, there's people you already have in your life. 
who are trusted advisors. You have, you might have aunts, uncles, you know, you might have, depending on your age, you've got nephews and nieces, you've got maybe a family lawyer, an elder lawyer, a business lawyer, folks who I call trusted advisors. I, I always recommend go to somebody with whom you already have a relationship with other than, you know, the person that you're concerned about uh, and then ask them. And you can say, like, I read this book and they said something about red flags and maybe there's unauthorized trading. You know, maybe I've got these investments I don't understand. Or, boy, I lost 40 percent of my portfolio, but I look at all my friends or I look at a well-diversified portfolio and it should have lost 15 percent. Some of these red flags, are you getting, you know, trade confirmations via email that you don't understand? Going to someone else who can just, you know, fly spec a, a statement is a good step that doesn't cost any money. And, you know, and I say this because, look, the best thing to do is call a lawyer like me, call an investment fraud lawyer and any lawyer worth their salt is going to review things uh, for free without any kind of commitment. And because I know that my staff, I mean, I've got a a large, large staff here, but we all can look at a series of statements in 10 minutes and really get an idea of whether this is something that justifies uh, somebody taking the time to explore this to determine whether they should proceed. So, you know, hiring an investment fraud lawyer or consulting with one is the easy answer. But again, because of the pride and the embarrassment and the privacy, and some people maybe just don't love lawyers until they really need one. That's why I say go to a trusted accountant, you know, a family member. Maybe you've got a kid who graduated with a finance degree that's a niece or nephew or, or somebody else that could be independent and take a fresh look at things. I noticed that you advise to go to a trusted advisor or a lawyer, but one thing you didn't say is to confront your advisor or talk to the brokerage firm. Why is that? So it's a, again, another great question. So and when once there's a potential conflict or a potential problem, when you've reached out, or if sometimes the brokerage firm will recognize internally that they've got a problem with one of the brokers. So what they'll often do is send what I call a happiness letter, and these letters are described in my book. So to, in my opinion, these firms do these to protect themselves and to build a record uh, in defense of, of what might be a case down the road filed against them. They send a letter that basically says, hi, you know, I work with your broker and I'm sure everything's great and he's great. And I know you guys have been friends forever, but I just want to confirm with you that, that everything, the activity is good uh, and I'm sure it's all fine. But if you have any questions at all, give us a call. And, and that's a letter that most people uh, don't know what to do with, or if they do do something with it, they call their broker. Well, if your broker's doing something nefarious and you get a letter from the broker's advisor, what's the broker going to say? Don't worry about it. I already talked to him. That was a mistake. I covered it. I just forgot to check a box. We're all good. My point is, as soon as there is even the potential for any problems, the relationship between you and your advisor and broker's firm is adversarial. They are there to protect themselves and their interests and keep all as much money as they can. So now you don't know this, which puts you at a disadvantage. So going to the uh, going to the opposing side, really, the person and the entity with whom you may have a conflict with, is just not the best place to go because they can't serve two masters. They're not going to protect themselves while at the same time protecting you. So you got to go to somebody else. And is it difficult once you decide you need someone who understands investment fraud to find someone who specializes in this type of legal action? So it's, it's a very narrow niche area. It's just so it's it takes some work because you, know, you don't want to go to a personal injury lawyer to file your investment fraud cases, just like you wouldn't want to go to me if you got into a car accident. But that doesn't mean that some lawyers that don't that may not be as qualified as they should be, you know, may not take the case because they see an opportunity, you know, to to 
to, you know, to make some money. So it really, it really uh, takes, it, it pays to do the research. And it's really more than just going on the internet because anybody can put a website up and, and copy everyone else's stuff and say they're great. So you got to dig in and, you know, are they, are, do they actually have experience? Do they actually have cases? Do they actually try cases? Are they on any boards and, and do they, are they well-known in the industry? Do they communicate regularly with regulators? Uh, you know, do they have authority? So just, you know, the due diligence and get referrals. Uh, so it does take some, some time and effort. Uh, but the good news is once you find a lawyer who does this every day, that's got a, a good staff of, of lawyers and paralegals and, and analysts and relationships with experts, the good news is these cases, we handle all our cases on a contingency fee. So if, if it's something that we can do, we don't charge a retainer. We typically advance expenses. So, you know, we're on the same side. I get paid for results, not effort. So I, I don't charge by the hour. We never represent defendants. And if I think I can help you, then, you know, we're on the same side and I'll be, if I recover money, that's how, you know, that's how I pay everyone in my firm. So, you know, we're on, you know, we have equal interest, which is how I prefer to do it. It's notable that this type of work tends to be contingency based. Is that correct? I mean, there are lawyers that will do this by the hour. I can just tell you what I do is I want to get paid for results. And that's why I'm honest with people. I'm not going to take, I would never do this because I, I don't do any hourly work. But look, if you lost a million dollars and you, there's a, an advisor who likely will not have the ability to pay, well, there's some, you know, there's a lot of lawyers out there that will take it uh, and bill by the hour. But if, if I don't believe there's a likelihood of a significant recovery as a result of, you know, what happened in the case, then I'm not going to recommend you pursue it because I don't want people throwing, you know, good money after bad. The book is The Investor Protector Stories of Triumph Over Financial Advisors Who Lie, Cheat, and Steal. David Meyer, I wanted to thank you for coming on today. If people want to know more about you, where can they find you on the internet? So our website is investorclaims.com, investorclaims.com. And my book, The Investor Protector, will actually be on sale June 8th, and it'll be on Amazon. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank David Meyer. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody. You might have noticed that this episode sounds a little different, and the reason why is that it was recorded live on a new app called Fireside Chat. Fireside is the brainchild of Mark Cuban and a businesswoman named Fallon Fatimi, and it is kind of like Clubhouse in the sense that you have creators who have live rooms where we have conversations and the audience can actually partake, step up on stage and ask questions of our guests. It is new. It is in its beta form. On the other hand, I am doing live shows on most Fridays at 10 a.m. Central Time. And I'd love for you to be there to listen to a live recording of the Earn and Invest podcast. The easiest way is just go to earnandinvest.com slash fireside. Again, earnandinvest.com slash fireside. And there you can sign up to be a listener on Fireside Chat. The creators at this time have to be vetted through the Fireside application. So not everyone can produce their own show, but you can go over there, take a listen, as well as ask a live question during the taping of the podcast. Become a part of an Earn and Invest podcast. Ask your question directly of an expert. It's a lot of fun. Check us out, earnandinvest.com slash fireside. 
Hang out with us for a live taping of the Earn and Invest podcast every Friday at 10 a.m. Central Time. I can't wait to see you there. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.